Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, hello. Thank you for joining me this Thursday, December 8th. Brittany Griner is on her way home. Uh, the basketball star that has been spending more than nine months in Russian, um, well, various prisons and penal colonies. She's on the way home. The Defense of Marriage Act has been passed. President Biden says he's going to sign it right away. And uh, Nancy Pelosi presiding over what um, is the wrap up of her career leading Democrats in the House of Representatives with that vote on the Defense of Marriage Act. So much going on today. Um, let's real quick start with the Defense of Marriage Act, shall we? Um, Nancy Pelosi talked about this, you know, that um, that this was basically sort of the legislation that she was kind of going out with. And she was very happy about that. And um, she uh, expressed herself as she always did. Very beautifully. Uh, I'm working with Andy Miles today. He found a really nice clip when she was uh, talking to her fellow legislators about this Defense of Marriage Act and how it's wrapping up a career that started a long time ago with something very similar. Andy, play that sound you found from Nancy, please. Final bill as speaker the first time, one of the final bills that I signed was the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And now one of the final bills that I will sign in the enrollment will be this beautiful legislation, the Respect for Marriage Act that we are passing today. Today we stand up for the values the vast majority of Americans hold deal, a belief, dear, a belief in the dignity, beauty, and divinity, divinity, spark of divinity, in every person, an abiding respect for love so powerful that it binds two people together. San Francisco's, when we talk about freedom, I think of Harvey Milk. He once told his supporters, I have tasted freedom. I will not give up that which I have tasted. Yes, today this chamber proudly stands with the forces of freedom, not going back, and justice. Mr. Speaker, I urge a resounding bipartisan I vote in favor of the Respect for Marriage Act and urge a strong bipartisan vote. Thank you. Thank you. Barney Frank, for those of us of a certain age, we remember Barney Frank. He was, I believe, the first openly gay congressperson. He served in uh, Congress from as a Democrat from Massachusetts from 1981 to 2013. Um, he was there. He came back much older, walking with a cane, but he came back to celebrate this legislation. Now, remember, this is not the same thing as uh, the Supreme Court decision that um, said some time ago that there was certainly a right to gay marriage, just like there was a right to privacy and abortion. Yeah. Uh, this law says, in a nutshell, that if you are married, if you're a gay couple and you get married in a state where gay marriage is legal and recognized, and if 
the Supreme Court does what we are afraid it's going to do and overturn the decision that backed up gay marriage, then it goes to the states, just like we saw abortion. And it's going to be every every state for themselves. There will be states that repeal gay marriage. But if you say get married in the state of Illinois to your gay partner and you travel for work or vacation or whatever to a state that has repealed gay marriage or taken it off the books or even criminalized it, your marriage, your legal marriage in the state of Illinois must be recognized everywhere you go. If the state of, say, Missouri decides to criminalize gay marriage, you will not be subject to those rules. And might Missouri do that? Well, if um, Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler, who's a Republican who represents part of Missouri, has anything to say about it, that absolutely would be the case. Lest you think that um, there were there was Republican support. I think there were 39 votes for this in favor of this. The vast majority of the Republicans voted against it, including Kevin McCarthy, who wouldn't, when asked by a reporter why he voted against it, wouldn't answer, refused to answer him. Kevin McCarthy voted no on the Defense of Marriage Act, probably because he is desperately trying to get all of the Republicans to vote for him for speaker. He can't afford to make anybody mad, anybody like Vicki Hartzler. Remember that Republican congresswoman I mentioned just a couple of seconds ago from Missouri? Uh, Before this vote was taken, she used uh, her time to make a tearful plea against this. This woman got up there and cried, begging people not to vote for this. I think we have that sound. Listen to this. Mr. Speaker, I'll tell you my priority. Protect religious liberty, protect people of faith, and protect Americans who believe in the true meaning of marriage. I hope and pray that my colleagues will find the courage to join me in opposing this misguided and this dangerous bill. I yield back. Gentlewoman's time has expired. The misguided and dangerous bill that would say if you are married, let's say you're Pete Buttigieg, yeah, in a loving married relationship, just Secretary of Transportation, if the Supreme Court changes its mind about the validity of gay marriage, states are going to go after it just the way we saw them go after abortion. So how does that work if Pete Buttigieg has to come to Missouri down the road? Talk about a program, make an announcement. Is he going to be arrested? Is he going to be thrown in jail because he's a gay man who has a husband? Oh, Vicki. Talk about misguided. Your religion and people who have deeply felt religious beliefs are entitled to them. Vicki can believe anything she wants to. She can swallow any teaching that her church hands out. Hook, line, and sinker, and that's okay. 
but Vicky cannot bring her religion to bear in my life. I don't believe what Vicky believes. And Vicky wants the laws of this land to make me follow her religious beliefs. And that's what's wrong. Other news of this day saw a picture of Brittany Griner, the WNBA basketball star, <clears throat> on a plane headed home. Whew. Um, there's been somebody, Mark Jacob, who's going to be on later today with Jennifer Schulze and me. We're going to talk about the media. I don't know if you follow him on social media, but you should. <clears throat> you know, we're, Brittany Griner's coming home. You'd think that would be a good thing. But uh, if you listen to Fox News or any of its reporters, somehow this is another defeat for Joe Biden. You know, um, everybody's like, well, you know, there's still Paul Whelan and other Americans. That's very true. But as Anthony Blinken, Anthony Blinken, our secretary of state, said, the deal that was offered was this deal or no deal. It wasn't like. There was a negotiation. Well, what about this American? What about that American? It was either we will do this or there will be nothing. And also, I don't know if you heard, I don't, I don't want to play it. I don't want to give this guy any airtime. Peter Ducey is such a jerk. Uh, he basically asked Karine uh, Jean-Pierre today, the White House press secretary, uh, why we couldn't get somebody more valuable. I mean, we were giving the Russians back an arms dealer uh, somebody that the media has lovingly uh, nicknamed the merchant of death. And all we got was Brittany Griner. I um, I think if I were in a Karine Jean-Pierre's shoes, I would have looked at him and said, Peter, I'm really sorry that in your world, a gay black woman just isn't worth a high profile Russian. Because that's the bottom line. And that's essentially what he said. You know, how come we didn't get anybody more important? You know, we got a basketball player and they got an arms dealer. That doesn't seem right. But underlying that question, we got a black gay woman and we gave up a white guy. Don't be fooled by Fox. We're going to take a break now. We're going to talk a little bit more um, about the Griner situation. And I'll share with you what her wife had to say when we come right back after this. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I mentioned and you heard uh, the news at the top of the hour. Brittany Griner is on her way home. She uh, spent time in a Russian prison. She spent time in a Russian penal colony. She has been detained by Russia for more than nine months. She is uh, on her way home in exchange for a, a Russian arms dealer. The, actually, the deal that Russia suggested before the midterms, they not only wanted the arms dealer, they wanted a, there was a second Russian they wanted a two-for-one deal. That was what they were proposing. So, you know, Fox News has their pants up their butt right now because, of you know, we got a, a black basketball player instead of an arms dealer. The deal that Russia first wanted huh, 
was much worse. And you know what? Donald Trump bragged about what a great relationship he had with Putin. Remember that? Still does. This um, American Paul Whelan, who is still being held, why didn't Donald Trump call up his friend Vladimir Putin? And as a show of solidarity, Putin could have sent Whelan home. He had more than two years in the presidency to do that. He had more than two years in the presidency to do that. Did he get it done? Hmm, let me check. Oh, yeah, that's right. No, he didn't get it done. He absolutely didn't get it done. Who knows? It doesn't even sound like it was much of a priority for him. So, uh, Sherelle Greiner, Brittany's wife, was at the White House today and uh, expressed her happiness and her heartfelt thanks to everyone involved in this process. Listen to this. So over the last nine months, you all have been um, so privy to one of the darkest moments of my life. And so today I'm just standing here um, overwhelmed with emotions. But the most important emotion that I have right now is just sincere gratitude um, for President Biden and his entire administration. Um, He just mentioned this work is not easy and it has not been. There's been so many hands involved. And so I'd like to take a moment to just specifically mention a few. Uh, Vice President Harris, Secretary Blinken, Jake Sullivan, Joss Geltzer from the National Security Council, Roger Cartson and Fletcher Schoen from the hostage invoice office. Um, A special thank you to Governor Richardson and Mickey, um, the Mercury players, the WMB PA for your advocacy. And also, um, you guys may not know this, but um, my family has been tremendously supported by the Washington um, Agency, BG's agent, um, Lindsay Colas. It's just been amazing for me and my family throughout this process. So um, today my family is whole, but as you all are aware, there's so many other families who are not whole. And so BG's not here to say this, but I will gladly speak on her behalf and say that BG and I will remain committed to the work of getting every American home, including Paul, who's family is in our hearts today as we celebrate BG being home. We do understand that there are still people out here who are enduring what I endured the last nine months of missing tremendously their loved ones. So thank you everybody for your support. Um, And today is just a happy day for me and my family. So um, I'm going to smile right now. (laughs) Um, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very much. And President Biden went on to say that he had spoken to Brittany Griner. She was so grateful. She's on her way home. And he said that she specifically asked him to work for the release of other detained Americans. This is what the president said about that. Brittany is, uh, is an incomparable athlete, a two-time Olympic gold medalist for Team USA. She endured mistreatment in a show, at a, in a show trial in Russia with characteristic grit and incredible dignity. She represents the best America, best about America. It is across the board, everything about her. She wrote to me back in July. She didn't ask for special treatment, even though we've been working on a release from the day one. She requested a simple quote, please don't forget about me and the other American detainees. Please do all you can to bring us home. 
We never forgot about Brittany. We've not forgotten about Paul Whelan, who's been unjustly detained in Russia for years. This was not a choice of which American to bring home. We brought home Trevor Reed when we had a chance earlier this year. Sadly, for totally illegitimate reasons, Russia is treating Paul's case differently than Brittany's. And while we have not yet succeeded in securing Paul's release, we are not giving up. We will never give up. We remain in close touch with Paul's family, the Whelan family. And my thoughts and prayers are with them today. They have to have such mixed emotions today. And we'll keep negotiating in good faith for Paul's release. I guarantee that. Paul Whelan is 52 years old. He is a former Marine. Uh, He was given a bad conduct discharge from the Marines in 2008. He was in Moscow for a wedding and um, apparently he was in the course of that trip past a hard drive that had some information on it about the Russian government, whether that was planned or whether that was done to somehow set him up. Nobody knows. Um, but Paul Whelan is still held in the United States and efforts are still underway to negotiate his release. You know, as I, as I said um, um, a while ago, the uh, Russians didn't didn't say, well, you know, we'll do this for a Whelan or we'll do that, you know, for a, a Brittany grind or um, it was this is what we will do. We would prefer to get two people. Um, there was another guy who's sitting in prison uh, that they want very badly and have not yet gotten. Um, but it was a one-for-one swap. Brittany Griner is on a plane, and she is on her way home. It has been a long trip. So, um, you know, who knows what will happen over the next three hours Um, But I'm guessing that Brittany Griner getting back onto United States soil is going to be the big story of the next couple of days. And we'll see who gets the first interview with her so she can talk about the treatment that she received when she was a prisoner in, uh, in Russia. Again, first she was held in a prison, and then the announcement was made that she was going to serve of the rest of her sentence in a Russian penal colony. And she was moved off to the penal colony. Uh, this other guy that I told you when uh, Russia first offered uh, a two-for-one swap, the guy who they want is somebody by the name of Victor Bout. There's an interesting, if you want to look it up, from there's an interesting article in the Washington Post. And here's the headline. <laughs> Russia wanted Victor Bout back badly. The question is why? Nobody can uh, can quite figure it out. Um, maybe Victor Bout and Paul Whelan. Maybe that's a deal that can be negotiated in the coming days and months. Here's what um, we are going to be doing today on our show. We are going to be talking, as we always do, about... Uh, the mayoral race, remember, on February 28th, if you live in the city of Chicago, you will be voting 
on a field of candidates that may the prediction is the the field might be smaller than it is today. There's a possibility there have been some, as you know, we love to do petition challenges. We love to challenge those signatures. Um, there are at least nine candidates right now who will be on the ballot. That number could be reduced to six. Some are speculating. One of the candidates whose petitions have been challenged is a young activist by the name of Jamal Green. Uh, he is going to join us when we come right back after a break. Then we are going to talk with uh, Jennifer Schulze and Mark Jacob about the media. There's some really, um, you know, aside from the fact that we have 2024 coming up and everybody seems to be decided that we can't cover candidates the way we did 30 years ago. The question is, well, how do you do it? There has also been, and I found this um, really, really surprising, there was um, a notice. There was a guy from the BBC who uh, did an interview and was talking about how he could see at some point in the future that the BBC wouldn't be television or radio, that the BBC would would simply um, simply be digital, that at some point in the future, he sees that's how things are going. Okay. <laughs> Alrighty, that seems extreme. Anyway, we're going to talk about stuff like that and more. But let's take a break and get the rest of the day started. We'll be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We have a number of candidates who could be on the ballot on February 28th if you will be voting for mayor for the city of Chicago. Willie Wilson, Lori Lightfoot, Rod Sawyer, Paul Vallis, Brandon Johnson, Cam Buckner, uh, Sophia King, Brandon Johnson, uh, Chewy Garcia, so far, also a couple of lesser-known people, Collins and Lugalglo, uh, both likely uh, to probably not make it to the final ballot. And uh, one more candidate, Jamal Green, a young activist who has been one of the earliest um, voices to say that they want to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago and also somebody whose petitions are in the process of being challenged. Jamal Green joins us now to talk about his race for mayor. Jamal, how are you today? I am good. Thank you so much for having me. I thought you were going to say when you were going through the line and say, then the best candidate, Jamal Green. (laughs) Well, then the best candidate, Jamal Green. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, I I must not have read that right. You uh, that right. <laughs> so, um, you're very welcome. Thanks for being here. Tell me about this petition that you're uh, the petition challenge you're facing. Yeah, we're not worried about the petition challenge. Uh, I mean, it's very unlikely that they'll knock off 15,000, 20,000 signatures. Our volunteers uh, got um, over two times um, the required amount. Um, and so we're, we, we all already checked them. Um, and we got first spot on the ballot this week. So everything is aligning how it should be. Um, so we're going to go through the process, um, get rid of that challenge. We got a challenge of our own as well, um, you know, against one of the candidates. Um, but we're staying focused on February 28th. This is 
a very pivotal election, um, the youngest candidate to ever run for mayor of Chicago, but the most experienced in the community. Uh, and, you know, that's what's important is people need to understand how important this election is, you know, to really elect the leader who is from the people of the people that's been fighting on behalf of everyday people throughout the city for over almost 15 years. And that's, that's what's important. Jamal, would you say that your age is um, a help, a hindrance, or just doesn't factor into it at all? Well, it's a strength for sure. Um, you know, being 27 and the youngest person ever run, if you look around the country, we just elected the youngest um, person ever to go to Congress at 25. Um, yesterday, we had an 18-year-old become uh, a mayor in Arkansas. Uh, young people are stepping up. If you look at the newest mayors around the city, I mean, around the country, um, they're all ranging, you know, from, you know, 27 to 35 or so. Um, and so young people are ready to, to take the torch. It's a plus for us. Why? Because without me being in the race, you know, you got less than 30 percent of people who will vote. Uh, and young people usually don't participate in elections because they usually don't see someone in that field that represents their values and connected to that generation. Um, so it's a plus for us because the numbers are on our side. Um, you know, we had just just in the last election for the state, 143,000, 18 to 34 year olds vote um, and, and the state election, um, you know, some weeks ago. Uh, and as you know, you know, 100,000 votes get you into a runoff. Um, and so we'll see an, a, a, a bigger uptick in, in the youth focusism in the race. Um, but most importantly, I have a base bigger than that. You know, I have seniors, right? I got a huge senior base. Because who's been watching me on TV for, you know, the, these many, many years, um, you know, fighting on behalf of people has been our seniors. And so we had a senior fest a couple of weeks ago. We had hundreds of seniors out, um, you know, pledging their support. Um, and we're constantly in senior homes throughout the city every week. Uh, and so we're going to be able to get a lot of different demographics in this race. And uh, we're pretty excited. When you talk to seniors versus when you talk to people in your own age demographic, are the are the concerns different? The things that they want you to do once in office, are they different? Do they have different a different focus? You know, that's that's the funny thing. Not much. Right. Um, You know, public safety is number one for everybody. Uh, And number two, I think both groups share the sentiment that the young people of today in Chicago are lacking opportunities, right? And so when I talk about the fact that we got to create a pipeline of middle-class jobs in these neighborhoods, making sure young people, um, you know, can look at different career fields by putting trade uh, uh, back in the school, by putting tech hubs around the city, um, by putting aviation programs and different programs uh, throughout the day and on weekends where young people can actually awareness of different career fields um, outside of just college, right? We got tech jobs that are six figures coming out of co- uh, of high school, uh, and we need to make sure there's a pipeline to that. Our young people are smarter than Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. I say that all the time <laughs> because it's so important, um, but our young people are without the resources. They're without the investment. They're without the institutions that invest in them. Uh, and we got to change that because our young people should be building cars and building big companies and um, wanting to stay in Chicago and invest back into Chicago. And that's what's not happening. So both groups share that sentiment as well. Hmm. So how is the campaign going as far as fundraising and endorsements? Yeah, the campaign has been going uh, great this week. As you saw, we got first on the ballot. Um, we have 
um, a lot of money committed, um, you know, over one and a half million committed to this race. Um, we, of course, have to get through this balance challenge over the next week or, week or two, um, you know, so we can really be real focused on February 28th. Um, we're about to unleash a huge campaign that's never been done to get young people to vote. Um, so I'm just teasing that on your show. Nobody knows about that. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, uh, we got some exciting things brewing and we got a lot of big endorsements that are coming down the pipeline in the next couple of weeks as well. As you know, we've already got, you know, Senator Nina Turner out of Ohio, who is coach, who is the um, co-chair of Bernie Sanders campaign, comedian Mike Epps, um, big time actress Susan Sarandon. Um, you know, uh, so we, we've been getting a lot of popularity. We're going to have a lot of celebrities and organizations. Uh, we're going to have some rallies. We're going to have some amazing things throughout the rest of this race. Um, so we're pretty excited. Jamal, you talked about your experience. You don't have oh, the traditional sort of experience that we would expect for someone running for office. The You know, mm-hmm. that you've been an alderman or you've been a congressman, right. something along that. Your experience is more out in the neighborhood. Talk to me. Uh, explain to my listeners what kind of experience you bring to the table. Well, I talk about this all the time. You know, I'm the only one in the race that got real life experience each and every day in these neighborhoods fighting on behalf of the people. The rest of people who have the experience in this race didn't do anything with the experience that they have. You know, I don't know why we think that because someone is in an elected position that they didn't do good at, that somehow they have enough experience to go to another position. Um, and so I, I always use that in my messaging because people are really tired of career politicians who jump seat to seat but don't get anything done. I've been getting things done um, for, you know, almost 15 years now, whether it was. Um, we'll talk about some of the things that you're proud of that you've gotten done. Specifics. Chase, uh, specifically, you know, when we talk about redlining communities, because I always talk about how we must increase home ownership in neighborhoods so we can have stakeholders on the block. Chase Bank in 2020 was revealed to have redlined communities on the south and west sides from 2012 to 2018. We organized. Chase Bank banned me from every Chase in America. And then they came to the table and brought forth a billion dollars for the next five years, um, you know, and increasing home ownership on the south and west sides. When we talk about, um, you know, during a pandemic when businesses were looted, we raised, the, uh, we had the largest grant program, a quarter of a million dollars went out within a week to get all businesses back open, more than the city even put out. You know, when we, we had food deserts, um, well, we have food deserts. During a pandemic, we put uh, um, thousands of produce bags throughout the city of Chicago. You know, I've mentored at-risk youth for many years. I've developed many businesses and many projects. Um, most recently, my, my uh, solar panel company, just in Inglewood, if people uh, saw the new Love Fridge, um, where community groups came together to put together a fridge of free, fresh produce because Whole Foods just closed, They also needed a way to power that fridge. So our solar panel company built the 100% solar panel uh, solar system to power the fridge, free fresh produce on 63rd and Morgan uh, as a bridge to the next store that um, Inglewood is looking to have. So I've done many much work around all sectors. You know, I'm only one in the race. I can say I manage several businesses and and employees. Um, And, you know, I've also uh, been in the community doing the work each and every day without the fancy title. Jamal Green is a neighborhood activist. He is running to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. We are going to take a break and we're going to be back with more conversation with him right after this. 
Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with community activist Jamal Green. He is running to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. We've been talking about uh, his experience and also some of the conversations he's had with voters, both young and old. You mentioned in the course of that discussion, Jamal, that one of the things that people say to you, whether they're young or old, everyone is worried about crime and worried about being safe. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, Alder Sophia King put out a very specific plan for how she would, say, um, reorganize the police department and try to make some inroads. What would you like to do, very specifically as possible? Uh, and, and let me say this real quickly. Uh, if any candidate steps up and uses police as the only way uh, or the main focus in, the, in any plan that they put out, uh, nine times out of ten, you're not going to have any real solution. Um, police is a support system, and the reality is you cannot continue to depend on police uh, to carry the full load, whether it is patrol streets, whether it is to respond to mental health calls, homelessness, um, you know, be in schools. We got too much going on that we're not tackling um, so that we can make that job easier. We must have a comprehensive plan that not only invests back in the neighborhoods um, from increasing the home ownership rate. That's why I talked about moving forward a single family mortgage bond to back home loans so that thousands of people can come back into the neighborhoods, removing the red tape for small businesses, giving the first business license for free, uh, streamlining inspection business uh, uh, inspection uh, zoning and permitting so that we can open up small businesses in record time. We must rebuild these neighborhoods, and then we must also make sure that we're investing into our, into our schools, making sure that we got a pipeline of middle-class jobs for young people, increasing uh, the money in the after-school programs. And then one of the big biggest things that's important short term is that we want to create a youth intervention department where young people 25 and under, if they get arrested, if they drop out of school, then we will have youth interventionists that would have them on their caseload to analyze their housing situation, to analyze um, you know, uh, uh, the opportunities that they can have. And instead of just giving them a cycle through the juvie system, we're able to mandate them to mentor organizations, give them free counseling, give them uh, um, housing and things of that sort to help put them on the right path, um, you know, once one of those things are triggered. Um, well, I agree with you that it has to be the problem of crime has to be tackled at its root, which is lack of opportunity and poverty. That's that's something that is all too often too easy to neglect because it's sort of a nebulous long term kind of goal. But in the short term, basic questions like um, would you keep on? Would you keep David Brown on as head of the Chicago no. Police Department? No. One hundred percent not. I would have his resignation one day before I walk into that office. I think that, you know, we need somebody that's from Chicago that understands um, the neighborhoods that's in tune with them. You know, so somebody uh, you'd uh, like to see somebody who's currently on the force get elevated as opposed to bringing somebody in from the outside. I think that makes way more um, sense than getting somebody from outside who's GPS and don't understand the community stakeholders. 
um, we definitely need a new superintendent. We definitely, um, you know, have to implement another uh, um, department of unarmed social workers and things of that sort. And st- they have a pilot program, but it needs to be a real department where instead of police responding to mental health and homelessness, that there are people that are trained to do so so that they're focusing on violent crime. We have to incre- increase our clearance rate. We got to solve murder. So whether that is. Well, part of the reason, at least one of the reasons we hear from the police department is that they are that they are so understaffed. They've had a lot of retirements, a lot of people quitting. Um, What would you do to either increase recruitment or uh, until those recruits can get through the academy, beef up the numbers that are down by more than a thousand? Well, you know, let, let me say this. We have more police officers, um, you know, than we had five years ago or 10 years ago. And in comparison to other cities, we're, you know, uh, well outpacing many cities. But let me also say that, of course, the job of police and people don't want to be police right now because of everything um, that's going on. Um, but the reality of the situation is, is that we must make sure that we're attacking the real problem so that the, the job of policing is not uh, a job where people are scared to, to be in because they're, they can possibly engage with um, um, uh, someone who could take their life or they feel like they're undervalued or, you know, all these different reasons of why police don't want to be police. But that will only change if we make it a priority that we are going to um, reform certain systems and create new ones and treat um, the root causes of what's going on with a priority um, and make it to where people that it sends a message to folks who could possibly want to be policed that this is the time to join the force because we are going to focus on the, the real problems instead of saying officers work 12 hours a day. You can't have any off days uh, and, you know, uh, put them on overtime every single day and knowing that's not solving the problem. We cannot continue doing that. You said that you want to make the job more attractive so that people feel now's the time to join. But, you know, some people are suggesting different ways to do that. We we've talked to candidates who've said, you know, that basically a lot of the rules the cops are operating under now should be just tossed out because if they felt they had more freedom, they would be more interested in doing the job. Uh, Sophia King said, you know, we should reach out to some of our detectives who've retired and see if they would come help address the backlog of cases that we've got. What specifically would you back? Well, you know, I don't think I, I disagree with both of those, those sentiments. Um, you know, I think what needs to happen and it goes back to uh, the next generation. Right. Is where is the pipeline for young people to grow up? and understand what the job of policing is, the benefits and things of that sort to the community and to themselves and want to join it. And we have to make sure that there is a pipeline. We also have to make sure that that, that w- within the testing and the requirements that there's not discrimination. You know, I'm hearing so much from the fire department. I mean, it's astounding that like many uh, folks that are in the fire department that, I mean, um, that are trying to get in the fire department uh, and it's basically political, right? And you have so many black uh, um, firefighters who are applying, knowing that we, we have the, the lowest amount of black firefighters in the, uh, um, compared to anyone else. And they're applying and taking the test and passing the test 
but uh, um, somehow they still don't get pulled onto the force because uh, the process is very political. And so, you know, we have to make sure that, you know, we, we are being intentional with how we're hiring, the requirements, uh, and make it transparent. One of the things I think that needs to happen, whether that is applying for city jobs, whether that is applying for a CHA voucher, like we need some transparency. How do people understand where they are in the process and what's next? Instead of applying for a test and they say, hey, you're on this list, we'll call you, and then they never call you. You know, it it makes no sense. We need transparency. We need to uh, make sure that we're doing the right thing, and this is is not just politics, and we're pulling in who we want to pull in. Let's uh, shift gears a second and talk about the Chicago public school system. Uh, Again, would you keep Pedro Martinez at the top? What changes, if any, would you like to see at CPS? We'll be all day. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I think that, you know, we, we, we definitely need some new leadership there. Um, you know, uh, CPS, we must make sure that we, one of the biggest things is the funding mechanism, right? We got enrollment-based formula. We need to be need-based formula, and we need to work with our legislators to make that the case. It makes no sense that we have eight schools, selective enrollment schools, that, you know, if you just happen to test to get in, you're lucky. But if you don't get into these schools, then you go to a school that is vastly underfunded. Why is it underfunded? Because the the property taxes in the neighborhood is low because of the median income, and and, and not many folks in that neighborhood are are homeowners and paying taxes. And, And because people don't want to send their kids to those schools and the money follows those students. And so we got to uh, um, really look at the, the funding mechanism for CPS. That's why I talked about moving forward, a public bank, right? We should yeah, talk about bank. that. You, uh, you're talking about having a city bank. A city bank. You know, it's, it's similar to the Bank of North Dakota where we would create the Bank of Chicago. And we would um, have a nine-member board um, where the city council would be able to elect three people. I would be able to appoint three people, and the city of Chicago would be able to uh, elect three people. And that board would have priority uh, of, um, I mean, would be able to prioritize the the loans that they're putting out, whether that is for home loans, whether that is for income-based housing, small businesses, et cetera. And the great thing about this is that all of the profit that comes back from the bank goes right back into city services. Usually banks, they invest in private prisons, immigration detention centers, et cetera. We now have the opportunity to invest into our residents. And then, you know, the money that comes back, we invest back into our residents. This is a city bank and we can have a funding mechanism to pay down our, our pension crisis as well as um, fund our underfunded schools. Um, and then we also need to look at the TIF program that is horribly been mismanaged since Harold Washington has uh, died um, because that's taken a lot of money from um, these communities and their schools too. And so I'm, I am leaning and looking towards either we're abolishing it and going to create uh, a new economic tool or reform it, um, leaning more towards abolishing it, which would move forward, um, you know, billions of dollars back into our communities. Um, but that's a plan that we'll be looking to, to release at some point as well. It's all about the funding and making sure that we make these schools attractive for people to come to, not uh, uh, hoping that people come, then we have the money to make it attractive. we we got to change that around. Well, in decades past, uh, schools used to get a lot more state funding, and uh, over time that state funding has dried up or at least gotten a lot smaller, which then increases the reliance on property tax. Uh, you'd almost have to address that problem at the state level, wouldn't you? 
Yeah, this is something that we got to work with our legislators on. But we got to change the the funding, right? We got to change the the formula. Um, and so this is something we got to work with the the legislators on. Um, you know, uh, like I said, at the city level, if we can lobby for um, a city-owned bank, um, which we also may have to work with legislators on, um, you know, we can find some some uh, a different revenue source if we look at our TIF funds. Um, and move forward a plan on that, um, that can bring us some revenue too. Um, so we just got to look at every area and really see how can we have the best funding uh, um, um, sources for our public schools throughout the city um, because our young people are suffering in these schools. You know, they can't test again to those schools. They're going to schools where they're, they're in 30, 40 kids a classroom, one counselor for the whole school, uh, and maybe 600 to 1,000 kids. You know, like it, it's it's terrible that we're failing them each and every day because we can't come up with the solutions to properly fund their schools and make sure the teachers have everything that they need. Uh, and that is going to change in our administration. It's a huge priority of mine. We have um, about 60 seconds left. What's one message you want to leave our listeners with today? The message I want to leave the listeners is that it's time for a change. If you are tired of the same politicians promising you things, they've never kept their promises. If you, if you want someone who's really in, in this for the right reasons, in this for the people, going to base every policy decision off of how it's going to affect the next generation, um, then I'm the person um, for you. We need change in our city to create a future that we can all believe in. I'm not doing this for anything else but to make an impact on Chicago and the next generation, and I want to do this with you. Thank you, Jamal. Uh, enjoy talking with you. I'm sure we will talk again before February 28th. Good luck. Keep yeah, up the yeah. good work in your campaign. Real quick, you got a website people can go to yeah. to find out more? Go to our website, gogreenchicago.com. That's gogreenchicago.com. Wonderful. Right, thank you so much. Thank you, Jamal. We are going to take a break for news and uh, traffic, which, of course, will be brought to you by Andy Miles. Um, and we will be back after this with Jennifer Schulze and Mark Jacob. And we are going to talk about reporting. Uh, hopefully we won't talk about Fox News, but I can't make any promises. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you CPT 820. This is one of the favorite things that I do each month, and that is talk to former uh, WGN-TV news director Jennifer Schulze and former Trib and Sun-Times editor Mark Jacob. And we talk about the news about the news and the news about the reporters and what is going on. Welcome, Jennifer. Welcome, Mark. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. You know, um, hey, all good. It's it's so funny. You know, you hear us talking on the radio uh, Mark and Jennifer and I actually just met in real life for the first time last week, seeing each other in three dimensions as living, moving human beings. Uh, but it's it's sort of it sort of felt like, you know, we already knew each other so very well. I just uh, thought the audience would find that amusing since I think they think we all hang out together all the time. Right. Well, we do have like a regular conspiracy sessions, don't we? Where we, we oh, our you're not straight. supposed to tell people. Oh, they just are oh, supposed oh, to suspect that. Oh, darn it all. Um, 
First thing I want to start with is kind of breaking news, though um, I certainly didn't hear it reported on the Associated Press. There is a potential walkout of uh, union members at the New York Times. Uh, I first saw um, a mention of it on social media. Uh, Jennifer, I think you might have shared this with me because somebody posted on social media that two very prominent New York Times reporters um, announced that they were not going to be honoring this walkout that was going to that is uh, potentially scheduled for today. Um, people don't tend to think of, you know, they think of rail strikes and uh, things like that. They don't tend to think of journalists and editors and writers uh, taking to the picket lines. Jen, you want to give a little background on that? Well, they are actually walk, walked out. Um, it started at midnight last night. Um, I believe there's 1,600 members of the union. I think that number is correct. Um, but if anybody has an update, please um, fill in. They've been negotiating with the New York Times. Um, according to the union, they've been negotiating with the New York Times um, for almost a year on uh, a new contract. And uh, apparently they had intense negotiations over the weekend. And those fell through. So yesterday... If you're on social media, you may have noticed lots of New York Times um, reporters and staffers um, starting to post saying, um, <clears throat> here's one right here. This is from the New York Times Guild, the union that represents the um, most of the staff. Um, I think there are three different unions that represent people who work at the New York Times. Um, to our readers, we did not make this decision lightly. We are deeply committed to the success of the New York Times. We also know that we produce our best work when we feel valued and treated equitably. And they were asking people to stay off the New York Times website, to not play Wordle, to not go to the cooking part of the website, which I use every day and apparently is the most popular thing. Well, I don't know, games and cooking, those two things are the most popular things on the New York Times website. And um, in asking folks to stay away from the New York Times products today, to not buy a paper, to not listen to it, um, the po- very popular, the daily podcast. Um, I don't, I haven't seen any coverage yet about um, how effective that has been, but you're right. Earlier today, Semaphore, a new digital publication, pointed out that two members of the D.C. Bureau Two very prominent members, including Peter Baker, the White House chief White House correspondent, um, were not participating in the walkout. Um, but that, again, I think they said they had 1,600 or could be 16,000. Mark, do you know how many people are in that union? Uh, no, no, I don't know how many are in the union. Uh, but, you know, it's a big staff. It definitely is. And, you know, folks, I don't I don't know that everyone realizes that um, – you know that that journalists, you know, are not living lavishly, and they don't they don't really make all that much compared to a lot of other people uh, in other professions. And because of the the uh, problems in the industry, uh, management is used as an opportunity to freeze salaries. Uh, you know, I know when I was at the Tribune, people weren't getting raises for you know four, five, six years steady. So, I mean, they were, so, and inflation was happening. So in effect, they were getting a pay cut. So it's, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think we need to like play any violence for, you know, journalism. Well, you know, if I can interrupt, Mark, but, along those lines, 
whenever I would speak to groups back in the days when I was a television anchor, uh, people were always surprised to know that the vast majority, even back then in the 80s when anchors were being paid what I like to call stupid money, you know, um, which no longer is the case, even even your top anchors. I, I've got friends at Channel 7 over the last 15, 20 years, and as the audience has been shrinking, every time contracts have come up, they have been renegotiated for salary decreases. Everybody has taken salary decreases multiple times. But even before then, 90, I would say, I don't know, 95% of the jobs in television news, the people you even see on camera, they don't make big money. They, you know, the, my first job in television paid me $90 a week. My first anchor job paid me $25,000 a year. And that wasn't that long ago. I mean, I was, you know, you know, I was not rolling in, I was not rolling in dough. And then I got a big increase when I went to start at Channel 7 or, and I think I was making $35,000 a year. Yeah. And I think you guys would all agree that, you know, nobody needs to, you know, have, you know, bake sales for the journalist. I mean, they're making enough money to survive. But it's, but I think you're right. There is this myth out there that journalists are part of some bizarre elitist class that's earning crazy salaries and all that. And that's just not the case. Plus the hours stink as, as you would have to admit. Oh, without and question. Conditions frequently are difficult and, um, you know, it's not an easy job. And I think, um, from all, everyone we know would agree that it's got, the job's only gotten harder for a myriad of reasons. I do think it's interesting. A couple of quick points I would want to say, um, I almost all of my professional experience has been in television and it, and in most places I worked, we were in unions while print was never in unions. That has changed quite a bit in the last um, however many years. I was reading um, before I came on about how um, how unionized newsrooms have grown since 2015, and particularly in the last few years. Um, it started at, um, with Gawker becoming the first major digital media company to unionize in 2015. And since then, um, unionized newsrooms have have really grown dramatically. And I say newsroom, I mean mostly print newsrooms. However, it's still not that many in the grand scheme. One in six U.S. journalists is in a union, and that's only 16% of all the journalists in America that are in a union. But there are a lot more. Um, I just saw some pictures on Twitter, which I hope we'll talk about before we get off the air today, about uh, the New York Times staffers are outside the office um, in New York City protesting um, and that's quite a sight to see. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this at the top, but it is just a 24-hour strike. Yes. Um, they called it, you know, to make a point, and they will all be back at work tomorrow. I did see one New York Times reporter, Annie Carney, tweet. I saw a story of hers come through, something I don't remember what it was about, but she's in, in um, Washington. And then about an hour later, she said that story was pre-written before the strike. 
Um, I am on strike with my colleagues. I just want to point that out. I thought that was really interesting. Um, well, that's the the one article I read said that, you know, the obviously management knew this was coming and that they were desperately, if, even though they knew it was only going to be one day, they were desperately trying to learn how to do some of these other jobs, you know, digital and posting and all this and and that they were pre-writing things to to be in today's editions. I'm not surprised by that at all. You know, I was curious this morning when the Brittany Griner story broke, how the New York Times would handle that, because my guess is that the manager still sitting in the newsroom today, or if they're working remotely, but still, you know, working, um, don't all know how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and that was a big story um, breaking and to have your newsroom not at work. I'm sure that's been an interesting uh, it's been an interesting day for them and lots of reasons, but particularly when you have a ginormous breaking news story like this one and your and your staff is out, you know, in the street instead of in front of their computers. Oh, I bet that was tough for them. Well, I actually wondered, you know, one of the two high profile reporters, if if not both of them, at least one of them is based in D.C., and I was wondering if the reason that that particular reporter refused to walk out was because they knew this story was coming. And and let's face it, I mean, if if they had not had any kind of reporting on this, uh, regardless of who else walked out and what support they have, that would have come down really strongly on that particular reporter's head. And maybe they just felt that um, that they that they just didn't want to take that risk with their job. Well, you know, I think the semaphore article actually says that in the case of at least one of them, they don't support the strike. Okay. There is no other, you know, no, they just didn't support it. So there's that. Well, guys, let's take this is a good place for us to take a real quick break. Uh, Jennifer Schulze, Mark Jacob and I are going to continue this discussion. Um, Andy, let's open up the phone line, 773 Seven six three nine two seven eight seven seven three seven six three nine two seven eight. You can join our conversation at any point this afternoon. We'll be back with more after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. You know what time it is? Hello? Can you hear me? It's time to return to the best progressive talk show in Chicago. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, now on WCPT 820. I am joined by former WGN Channel 9 television newsroom boss, Jennifer Schulze, editor at the Trib and Sun-Times, Mark Jacob. We are, we've been talking about this walkout, a one-day walkout at the New York Times. According to the Washington Post, um, 1,100 New York Times employees have pledged that they are going to not work today, which leaves editors and managers uh, trying to get their digital and paper product out on their own. And, uh, you know, it's... It isn't even that they want more money. A lot of it it has to do with, you know, uh, issues of how they work, things like being able to uh, work remotely and um, and how they are evaluated, how their work is critiqued. 
the typical sort of things, you know, you know, I mean, people, you know, after the rail strike was settled, people were like, oh, they got such a big raise. They ought to be happy. But they wanted sick days. <laughs> you know, the the money's. Yeah, that's great. Money. Wonderful. You know, nobody's ever going to say, oh, gosh, I really don't want the money. But lots of times when these kinds of things come to a head, it isn't money. That's the big issue of the day. And um, as Jennifer pointed out, the job of being a journalist can be excruciatingly demanding. And um, and sometimes it is not uh, (laughs) it's something that you do because, in my experience, the only people who stick with it are the people who are really passionate about it because they just love what they're doing. They love the information, the interviews, um, you know, being able to bring knowledge to light. I mean, I hate to sound, you know, semi-religious here, but it, it does kind of feel like a calling, don't you think, guys? To worry about people having opportunities to make so much more money at other things that they leave journalism just for the sake of their family. That's what I, I mean, that's what I was running into when I was a manager at the Tribune is that people would go into PR because they were going to paid more and they'd have better hours, you know? So yeah, it's a, it's a, a vocation. It's a, it's a passion, but you know, it's got, you got to pay people, you got to pay talented people to do hard things. I mean, it's, it's that simple. And if, and what I'm saying is that this doesn't really affect just journalists. It affects the entire society because if journalists don't get paid enough money to do the job, they're not going to do it. And, and then people, less talented people who are less passionate about it will be doing it instead, or nobody will be doing it. And let's not forget, I mean, we've talked about it a number of times on the show. The job of a journalist has changed dramatically, um, and it's only gotten harder. Uh, as newsrooms have shrunk, as, as you are required to write a story, do an audio version of it, a video version of it, put it on social media, you have to... You know, you're doing a lot more work. Uh, uh, fewer people are doing all that work. I mean, the number of layoffs, Mark knows this, what happened here in Chicago and the different newsrooms, they've all shrunk dramatically. It's just a, gotten to be a much harder job. And as we said earlier, particularly in the print side, has not had a lot of job protection. Not only that, the salaries, while they were okay, were not great. Um, but there wasn't a lot of job security, job protection. Um, so the unionization in these shops, I think, is a really positive thing. Um, you know, it's protecting the workers somewhat. The The business itself is still somewhat in free fall. Um, so I don't know, you know, ultimately where this all shakes out. But um, I'm glad that there are uh, more and more unions. Um, I, I saw something on social media the other day that uh, Chicago Sun-Times is um, in what appear to be some maybe stalled union negotiations with its owners. Um, so I don't know where that's going to go, but we definitely have a, a, a contract, an unresolved contract right here in Chicago. Um, I haven't heard much about what's going on. The, the TV unions seem to... Um, I mean, Joan, can you remember any of the local stations here in Chicago ever having a job action or actually going on oh, strike? I can't. Yeah, well, not a strike, but a, definitely a job action. When I was an anchor at Channel 5, uh, negotiations 
between the unions, uh, SAG-AFTRA and management were going very, very poorly. And um, there was talk, you know, because the management, of course, was like, you know, you anchors, you strike and, you know, it's, you can just say goodbye to your jobs. You have personal services contracts, blah, blah, blah. And what we finally decided when things got um, things didn't seem to be progressing short of actually walking a picket line. I don't know if you guys even remember this. We had black enamel pins made. It was a black circle, a shiny black circle, and we all wore them on our clothes. And that was that was what we did to to show management that, you know, we won't do we won't go out and walk a picket line right now. But don't think that we are not together on this. Even the anchors, it was a big deal for all the anchors, even though we weren't as affected by the things being negotiated as the rank and file reporters. But we wanted to make sure everybody understood that we were all together. We were all on the same page and that the next step after this would be to walk a picket line. And if you don't think me and Ron Majors and Carol Marine were ready to walk a picket line, um, you know, you were underestimating us, but we all, we reported with black buttons, we anchored with black buttons, and the contract got resolved. But I, I don't remember any time when anybody actually took a job action beyond that, right? Where they didn't go to work. Well, remember and at, then, like, is what happened at, in the New York Times. Can you think of yes, anything like that, Mark? Yeah. I can remember back at Channel 7, back, you know, it was it was not the the reporters. It was NABET. Those are the people um, who are in the union that do the editing and the shooting. The union, the NABET union in New York walked out over some issue. And so NABET in all all across the country walked out to support them. Uh, So the that happened at Channel 7. I think that was under Emily Barr's jurisdiction. I don't remember that. Okay. Well, um, it's an interesting time. <laughs> and, and, and Mark, have you talked to anybody like Greg Pratt? I know when the Tribune, the Tribune didn't have a union. And when they saw Alden Global, the hedge fund, buying them and coming in, a lot of the Tribune people unionized. Greg Pratt was their union steward for a first couple of terms. And then I saw him post on social media a while ago that you know, he was going to step away from the post and let somebody else do it. But um, have you talked to any of the Tribune folks over there since they've unionized, Mark? Well, I talked. Yeah, I sure have. But they, and and the, the thing about it is, they unionized. That was in 2018, and uh, last I heard, they still don't have their first contract. So I mean, you know, so it's it's so that's a difficulty. Uh, I mean, it, it's a long protracted negotiation. I mean, it couldn't correct me if I missed it, but I, I don't think that they, you know, it, it's one of those things where, yeah, you can they can recognize your union, but if they stall on actually signing a contract with you, you know, are you really do you really have the protections, you know? And and these are scary times to not be in a union if you're working in daily journalism, simply because of the, the cutbacks that happen all the time. Yeah, Greg, uh, Greg, who was a city hall reporter, and I think really made a splash there. Uh, he, you know, he's somebody else is going. They're looking for somebody else to take the leadership role. Last I heard, yeah. But it's uh, you know, and 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 I was in a guild at the Sun Times until I got you know promoted out of it into management. But uh, and it, you know, it was it was an interesting time, and it really gave the workers a lot more uh, a lot more clout. You know, a lot more ability to 
complain about things and have uh, management not you know pay attention to them and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, we, we even when I was in the guild back then in the eighties we picketed the company picnic. <laughs> and I, re- I remember us chanting, we won't eat your stinking food while our friends are being screwed. And oh, <laughs> oh, I like <laughs> that. Union days. Yeah, those were the the colorful union days of times past. But, uh, you know, so, it, it, you know, it really is. Uh, I'm not surprised that you're seeing a lot more unionization and journalism. It's That's just a kind of a people fleeing for the high ground in a flood. We've got a couple of callers who want to join our conversation, so let's take a break. Jennifer Schulze, Mark Jacob, and I will be right back after this. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Once a month, former WGN News Director Jennifer Schulze, former Trib and sometimes editor Mark Jacob, and I get together to talk about journalism and reporting. We were just talking about the business of unionizing as journalists since the New York Times staff has declared today a one-day strike. They are trying to negotiate a new contract. And, Mark, uh, before we – I'm going to go to the callers, Andy, but real quick, you mentioned that you were part of a guild before you got promoted out of it. Um, Funny story about the Tribune. When the union was being formed, apparently – John Cass, the very conservative columnist at the Trib, did not want to be a part of the union, didn't want to be a part of it, didn't want to pay union dues, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, a union is all or nothing. And unbeknownst to the rest of the staff, at least on paper, John Cass was uh, promoted to a management position. His job didn't change. His pay didn't change. His hours didn't change. All that changed was how he was recorded in their paperwork so John Cass could get out of joining the union that he didn't want to be a part of and didn't support. Uh, yeah, there, there are a lot of tricks like that that can be pulled. And, you know, I was Cass's editor for years. Someday we should talk about that because uh, <laughs> he, you know, he and I are not friendly these days. You know, well, once in a while. become even more crazy, you know. Yeah. This independent column, which is the only thing about that I will say about that is that because he posts his column without anyone editing it, obviously, it's I, everyone in the world now gets to see what I saw every day as far as, you know, errors and, and just crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. Fine so human being. My, I get to share my past <laughs> Um Let's go to the phone lines. Tony is calling in from Chicago and remembers tony you're saying there was an, a, a tribune strike in 85 go ahead you're on with me and jennifer and mark jacob yeah it was journalists it was printers mailers and um typesetters the typesetters were promised lifetime jobs and the other two unions went and strike uh just just because just they're strength in numbers um strikes don't remember that tone uh with 3,000 members it was called a um, hang on a second, Tony. Um, I don't know if you guys are having trouble hearing him. Um, Andy, can we clean up the audio a little bit? He's so muddy. I, I can't, I can't hear Tony. I don't, I don't know why. I, I'm having trouble hearing what you're saying. The, the, the Tribune strike in '85 was. Go ahead, Tony. The Tribune strike in '85 was a printer strike. It was not a. It was not a newsroom strike. Okay. But, but um, I remember because I was at the Sun Times and 
And Mike Royko had just defected to the Tribune and sometimes was very careful to get a picture of Mike Royko crossing the picket line in front of Tribune Town. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, sorry, Tony. Um, I don't know if you want to try to call back. Maybe we can get a, a better connection. I just I couldn't hear what you were saying. Um, let's let's go back to the phone lines. Jim is calling in from Chicago. Go ahead, Jim. Hi, how are you? I just think of the whole state of news. I suffered through the Rupert Murdoch version of the world for what now? Twenty years. I don't know how long it's been, but it's this distorted version of, of reality, which some people bought. Look like it's sicker. But what really gets me now is we've got a gentleman named Mr. Musk who buys the uh, Twitter, apparently the number one uh, news fount on the earth, and the Republican stations are energized by it. He's going to weigh in on two stories the origin of COVID. Did uh, uh, Boris, the ghost of Boris Karloff and Fauci dream up? COVID to make some money. The other one is, and he'll weigh in on the act, they said, at the end of the week. Then the other story is uh, the Hunter Biden laptop. Now, he's not, he hasn't decided yet on the details. I don't know if you could check a couple of his electric cars first at Kittyland hmm. or what he's going to do. But I mean, my point is, we had this Murdoch drive the narrative in the, over the cliff, and now you've got this nut. Uh, Taking over another source of information, yeah. Right, right. And how dangerous is the democracy? Anyway, you guys, I don't, you guys have been in the business all your lives. I just, where do you think it's going with this? That's all I want to say. I know that nobody has any answers, but I just, yeah. I'm, Thanks, I'm just Thanks Jim. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Jennifer, you want to jump in here? Wow. <laughs> Twitter. It's just a big pain in in everyone's backside and and so dangerous and frightening and I don't uh, I'm just horrified by it every single day because it's just getting worse and worse. Um, but it statistics do show that journalists really like Twitter and have really engaged with Twitter in the last however many years um, and used it to promote their stories, to find stories, to dig on other people's stories, to do all kinds of things. Um, in real life, not that many people use it, but journalists do uh, really like Twitter. Is it, in terms of journalism, I think it is a bit of a loss. Um, you know, it's, I've always likened it to the AP news feed of old, where it, when you worked in the newsroom, you could scroll through the AP news feed and see what was going on. That's, you know, Twitter is that for me, just mm-hmm. to see what's going on. And now there's so much junk in it. Um, it's so much less valuable um, in that regard. And I think people are going off of it. Um, uh, but in terms of the impact on news, I think it is going to impact news. You know, you have to go to other places to find your various news sources, and and you know that that's always an evolution, right? Yeah. Um, I am. I find that I know this sounds really weird, but when us, especially not so much anymore, because as you're right, Twitter, Twitter has become so so cluttered with stuff that I can't figure out how to get rid of or get through. But I used to always keep an eye on Twitter because it was the first place to find out if somebody uh, famous died while I was on the air. You know, I mean, 
You know, and I know that yeah. sounds really <laughs> that was pretty basic, but that was a main use of Twitter for me for a long time. Now anymore, I can't I can't get to the information I want. Right, and and here uh, you have Musk, Elon Musk, you know, bringing all these bad actors back to Twitter. You know, people like Laura Loomer, who's you know viciously anti-Muslim, and Roger Stone, who should be in prison right now, and you know, and, and Project Veritas, which whose leader has been convicted of a crime for these fake videos that they, um, you know, that they do. It's, uh, I mean, all the bad actors are very excited about uh, Twitter right now. All the people who like to lie and like to, uh, you know, didn't did their job as disinformation are being welcomed back. And uh, yeah, it's really disheartening because I mean, not that Twitter was perfect before, but but it it, it was a place where some reasonable conversations could be had with people and where there was some standard of conduct to where you know. Nazis were not welcome. Now Nazis are welcome. And, and, and that's sad. That's sad. And, and a lot of reasonable people, you know, are leaving. Well, just or at least hedging their bets. The head of the Daily, right. Daily Stormer was brought back to Twitter after being banned 10 years ago. I mean, say who, who, what Daily, Daily Stormer is. Daily Stormer is is like the rightest of the right wing organizations in America, you know, Nazi, neo-Nazi to the hilt. And, um, you know, it's a scary, it's a domestic terrorist organization. And it's like, it's the Charlottesville people, you know, it's a, yeah. it's the, it's a, the Nazis with torches. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they, the head of it, I'm not going to even say his name was, um, banned 10 years ago and he's back. Um, I mean, that tells you all you need to know really about Musk's new Twitter. Um, Mark's exactly right. Um, the crazy right wing, the dangerous right wing, uh, is back and, and polluting this vehicle for sharing information with more lies and disinformation simultaneously almost every single person who worked on those issues for the Twitter company doesn't work there anymore. Um, so the place is like a sewer. <laughs> right. It's really just, uh, uh. <laughs> and, 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 and Musk, you know, it, it chalks it up to free speech. Which is, I mean, his whole view of what free speech is, is, is crazy. And the idea, Twitter is a private company. It is under no obligation to publish everything that anyone, that anyone publishes. You know, if, if crazy right-wing people want to publish crazy right-wing stuff, go to it. You know, have at it. But, the, it, but it's not censorship when another private company refuses to, to share it. And, and, and that's what you're getting all this disinformation right now that says, oh, the, the other social media and, and the pre Elon Musk Twitter were censoring the right because they weren't like publishing what they said. There was no obligation for a private company, Twitter, to publish lies that another private uh, organization made. I mean, that's that's their free speech. Right. Free speech is people being able to, to control their own property, to control their own businesses. I mean, and, and so they're so the right wing is twisting this all. They're twisting freedoms in uh, the idea of freedom in a in a ridiculous way. 
I think the first time the three of us talked about media on this radio show, we talked about this very problem, the lack of understanding and then the taking advantage of the lack of understanding of what the First Amendment is and how it works and how it doesn't work. And and it is it has become a, such a weapon for the right and a... And they're using it, as Mark said, improperly. Twitter, it, the First Amendment applies to the government. It doesn't apply to Twitter. I mean, it doesn't apply to Facebook. It doesn't apply to any private company. Um, but I, do people really not know that? And are they just, is it a nod and a wink to all this stuff about free speech in the First Amendment? Or, I, I, I mean, it's probably a little bit of both, right? I mean, I'm sorry. I think a lot. Of, I think a lot of these. I think a lot of people who voted for Trump were the people who didn't pay attention in school. I think they were the people who were doing something else. They were sitting in class. They were not listening. And I don't think that that the MAGA Republicans. I don't think most of those voters understand things like what the First Amendment actually says. I mean, it's. I, I think they're just. I think they just don't haven't really been paying much attention, so they're easily lied to. And it sounds bad, right? Oh, they're violating the First Amendment. Um, yeah, there's an excuse to do you anything know. you want. Right. I mean, let's and, face and, it. Let's and, face this, this Hunter Biden laptop thing was is it was the 2020 version of the Hillary Clinton emails thing. It was that's what that's exactly mm-hmm. what it was. Mm-hmm. It was some way to 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 invent something because that's what right wing disinformation is. Is so often it's you know the war on Christmas and crap like that. Just inventing stuff out of whole cloth that isn't real, and or hyping something that's very minor and making it seem like you know a, a huge deal. So, so the Republicans thought they were going to lose the presidential election, so they cooked up this Hunter Biden laptop crap in uh, October. It was the October surprise of 2020, and a lot of the news media, the responsible news media, said we're not going to. We got fooled ten four years ago. We got fooled. We because you know clearly the New York Times and other outlets way overplayed the Hillary email thing, and they said we're not going to do it again. We're not going to like be you know. A, fish with a hook in our mouth. We're not going to do exactly mm-hmm. what the right wing tells us to do. And and that appalled the right because they're so used to successfully manipulating mainstream media that the fact that they couldn't in this case really disappointed them and they need to get back now. They could need to and so so now here we are, we're past that election, you know, by more than a year and you know by two years and and we're still talking about Hunter Biden's laptop. I mean it, you have to wonder what what, what other things we're not talking about, the Republicans aren't talking about because they got nothing to sell other than Hunter Biden's laptop. I mean, oh, my God, that's what that, that's what they got to sell. That's what they're going to tell the American people. That's how they're going to help American people. Well, in all laptop? fairness, Mark, um, from what I've heard lately, in addition to Hunter Biden's laptop, they also have some um, Hunter Biden penis pictures. Um, they got that to sell, too. So let's not forget that. Uh, guys, we we need to take a break. Yes, that, they, that's what. Yes, you might be seeing them on social media. I'm sorry to say. Uh, we're going to take a break. We have more callers. We're going to continue this discussion right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. 
Former editor at the Trib and the Sun-Times, Mark Jacob, former WGN Channel 9 News Director Jennifer Schulze, and I have been talking about journalism and the media and taking your calls. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. Paul is calling in from Seattle. Hey, Paul, you're on with me and Mark and Jennifer. Yeah, thank you, John. Yeah, the news media has been uh, politically browbeaten by the right wing for 40 years now when Ronald Reagan started with the liberal media. And nobody wanted to be the liberal media, but they've made progress because now the media has become kind of uh, uh, purveyors of, of disinformation and conspiracy theories simply by either uh, re- just simply repeating them or, uh, or, or not extinguishing them. And it's kind of like there's this Gresham's law in news media that bad practices will always replace good ones. Because there's, we still hear this. Some people are saying that Democrats are, you know, uh, catalytic uh, children eaters and pedophiles. Others say not so fast. Maybe not. And just by saying stuff like that, that's what we get. That's the Fox News practice. And I'm so glad Mark brought up uh, Hunter Biden's laptop. Okay, look, that apparently needs to be extinguished, and it could be easily if someone would just simply ask the question. First of all, how long has it been? Since Hunter Biden has had possession of his alleged laptop, how many hands has it been through in the meantime, including Rudy Giuliani's? I mean, there's a, you know, to be some kind of evidence that has to have a certified chain of custody, a reliable chain of custody. And where the hell is the damn thing now? It's just <laughs> out there like this, this, uh, I don't know, amorphous. If, when those questions are answered, and, you know, I asked somebody on a right-wing talk show, I asked exactly those questions. Guess what they did? They dumped my call. Dumped it. Didn't <laughs> let it on. Yeah, guess right. Because they don't want those kind of questions. That, oh, if you start thinking about it, yeah. There's, and besides that, whatever's on it is completely inadmissible. It's all hearsay. It's just emails. It doesn't prove a damn thing, but it doesn't get extinguished, so it's out there. And I think that the American people's concept and understanding of the First Amendment and the Constitution period. The damn thing is too complicated for most people to read. It's kind of like the Star Spangled Banner. It's too hot a thing. Well, so, if you don't understand it, they have like a schoolboy's sixth grade or fourth grade understanding. It's a free country. It's free speech. That's kind of the way people, they don't really know what the hell the First Amendment means. And that's why we're in the position of having all this disinformation and conspiracy theories laying around out there just toxifying the environment, and that's what we have, because the news media doesn't clean it up. Well, Paul, I wish you were a little more passionate about things, but, you know, <laughs> we'll uh, thank you for, for the call and and the comments. Who wants to jump in? Mark, you ready? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, Paul raises a, a good point, and one of the things I've been complaining about is that, is that you, what you're seeing today is news media publishing things and repeating things that they know are wrong, you know, in the, in the, in the interest of appearing objective and appearing fair, we're going to be fair. If we like say, you know, things Republicans said, say things Democrats said, then we're fair and we can just step away. But if the things that the Republicans are saying are just flat out lies, then they're, they're projecting lies. They're, they're squirting lies into the system. And, it, and, that's not what that's not what a journalism job. A journalism job mm-hmm. is trying to find out the facts, and the, and the only reason that you want to hear from the Democrats and the Republicans is if they can provide you with facts that you can independently verify or that you can debunk. You know what they say, and so that's the job of a journalist. I mean, the, the lazy thing that we're saying today is uh, is is 
people who are willing to, well, uh, the Republicans said, you know, X, and you know it's not true. You know, the Republicans said we got to stop these open borders, and and that that one drives me nuts because. <laughs> Have you ever seen a situation where, you know, three or four million people were stopped at a border and that meant that the border was open? I mean, if yeah. the border is open, then nobody's being arrested. So, so Republicans keep on saying, well, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people are being arrested at, the, in, at, at Biden's open borders. Well, they're not open borders if people are being stopped and apprehended. And so there you so, go, so being logical again. I know. I mean, but you hear them, but, but, a lot of news media let people say crap like that, and they don't ever stop them. They don't ever say, they don't ever say what I just said. They don't ever say, well, what are you talking about open borders? How can it be an open border if people are being apprehended? They never say that. They let Republicans just say this BS, and they don't stop them. That drives me nuts, and I think Paul is right. Amen. You know, I was talking with Chris Bury yesterday, and one of the things that uh, DePaul journalist in residence, Chris Bury, former um, network newsman, and one of the things that we were that we were bemoaning was the the seeming um, disappearance of the follow up question or the challenge or um, an interviewer or anchor who even listens to what the person is saying to them and can follow up with it. Um, I mean, it's you get the sense sometimes with so many of these reporters that they've got a list of questions right here in front of them. And by God, they're going to get through this list. You know, a God, you know, it doesn't matter if you say something that's not true. You know, I don't have time to follow up. I got to get through my list. Right. Or they got to get to the next guest. Particularly, that's particularly obvious on those Sunday morning shows. It's yes. like they, they pre-decide, which I don't blame them for that. I want to talk, I'm going to talk about these things that, you know, just in their heads or they make some notes or their producer or whatever. And that's fine. Yeah. Be prepared. That's what being a journalist is all about. Be educated, prepared, thoughtful and all those things. And then it's like they get stuck. It's, 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 they're not listening or, or they don't want to challenge, which I think that is the bigger problem. I think, and I've said this on this show before, I think there's the access journalism question, so they're all friends and they Uh don't want to piss anybody off, or they are afraid that they don't want to be attacked by Elon Musk's Twitter crazies, right? That's scary stuff. Um, But for whatever reason, cowardice is is everywhere and so a like mark has said repeatedly why are you inviting people on your shows or interviewing them again when you know every time you talk to them they uh, they lie and then when you do have them on they say what they're going to say they roll right over you these guys are pros they roll right over whoever is interviewing them and they say what they're going to say and they don't care. Ask any follow-up, whatever, whatever, unless you are really ready to go toe-to-toe with that. I mean, most reporters aren't, and we mm-hmm. pay the price for that. What I would love to see is, you know, on these Sunday morning shows, and, and they are so tightly programmed that they got to get to the next guest and all that thing. But I'd like to have if they have a Republican on or anyone Democrats, but mostly Republicans are lying these days, and 
if they have them on and they say something outrageous, that they just stop or they ask them a question like, you know, all right, so you, so you actually believe in the Constitution. Would you vote for Donald Trump who just said he wanted to get rid of the Constitution? And then they do some, they, you know, they evade and they just move on. And why, why don't they just say, no, I really want your answer. Would you vote for uh, Trump even mm-hmm. you know, after this? And then they evade again. No, I really need your answer. Will you, you vote for Trump? And just ask it and ask it and ask it and ask it until they answer a question or until they walk off. And if yep. you bump, just have to bump a, a guest later on in your show, that's the breaks. But that's mm-hmm. good journalism. That's holding people's feet to the fire. And they just never do it. They let people, you know. Well, we, we used to do it. I think we used to do it a lot more. Um, than we than we do it now. I remember my good friend David Lehman, who was a local prominent local newsman at various outlets across the country for years. I mean, he told me that when he was doing a political debate, he would meet with the the candidates before the debate and he would tell them, look, I'm going to ask you a question. You don't answer the question. I'm going to ask you the question again, and I'm going to keep asking the question until you answer it. And that's going to really probably be embarrassing for you. But I want you to know right now, right here up front, that's what I'm going to do. And and he would talk. He would lay it out for them. And he said it made people a lot more on point and a lot more focused. And I can imagine it would. But who has the stones to do that today? You're right, Jennifer. Nobody wants to make anybody mad. You don't want to make Governor Pritzker mad because then down the road he might not give you that exclusive interview. Oh well, shoot! I, do we gotta... say this. I think I think local reporters are much better at it. So mm-hmm. I think actually the folks that cover Governor Pritzker, cover Lori Lightfoot, I think they are much better at this than national reporters who, I, for some reason, are more sensitive. To whatever the pressures are, um, but I take a local reporter um, <laughs> at a news conference over almost every national reporter and host um, every time. I think they do a phenomenally better job. And you know who does an even better job are international journalists because all three of us have shared lots of clips from oh, Jennifer. I'm sorry, and London. we've got a, the computer's going to cut us off. It's 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 four o'clock. I've I've blown through this break, but we got to do news. Hold that thought. We will get back to it right after the news. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT eight twenty. I am joined by former Channel 9 News Director Jennifer Schulze and former editor at the Tribune, the Sun-Times, Mark Jacob. We've been talking about journalism, and one of the topics right before uh, we crashed and burned into the news that we were talking about is the seeming reluctance, particularly of journalists at the national level, to hold anybody's feet to the fire, to do any kind of follow-up question, and to continue to pursue a question when the political person they are talking to dodges or pivots or does any of the other things that we know that they are trained to do these ways. And Jennifer was talking about how um, oftentimes reporters at the local level are much better than this, as well as international reporters. And Jennifer, during the break, Andy and I were talking about uh, some of the reporters uh, at the BBC who seem to sometimes approach yeah. these things a little bit differently. So I'm sorry I had to interrupt you. Uh, we were having a computer cutoff threat. Um, so I'd like you to finish your thoughts on that. Well, I think having worked in local journalism um, 
for my career. Uh, I just see a um, less reluctance to just go for the story, um, whether it's live on television or in a news conference or wherever. Um, they're just really seem to be, frankly, more professional and more focused on the journalism. Remember, tell the truth and don't be afraid. <laughs> um, and then when you get into these more lofty, and I'm putting that in air quotes, uh, positions where you're a network anchor, a base the nation, or you're a White House uh, reporter in the press room, um, there's a lot going on that's not journalism. And, I mean, there's the grandstanding and the daily press briefing that we've talked about before. But then there's just the basic Q&A stuff that, you know, like Mark was saying, there's a tendency to just let a liar lie and not call them on it um, and just put it out there and not say, put it in any context or fact check or whatever. And then, and then there's the, well, I asked, asked no follow-up or I asked one follow-up, but you, I still didn't get the answer. So now I'm going on to another topic because mm-hmm. you know, I've done my job and I can guarantee you they walk off the show and say, I did a pretty good job. And people around them tell them, you did a pretty good job. Yeah, you know, you, you, really, you really pushed them on it. No, they didn't. If they didn't get to the truth-telling part of it, they failed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jennifer's got a really good point about the. I think Jennifer's got a really good point about the local versus national because, I mean, that these local Washington political reporters, I mean, these national Washington political reporters are also kind of celebrities. You know, they're on uh, CNN and MSNBC, often paid to do that. They're writing books. So they, they have kind of gone beyond the basic job of finding out facts and reporting them and become celebrities. Whereas on the local level, you know, in Chicago, for example, you mentioned Greg Pratt before. He's great at that. He's, you know, very dogged in trying to get answers from people and in, uh, you know, doing FOIAs for emails and things like that. And that's the job of journalism. And I think that you, on a local level, you find people who are doing just the basic job of fact-finding uh, as opposed to some of these, you know, Maggie Haberman-type celebrities on TV news and they who just tend to be you know, trying to sell something and sell themselves as a brand. Absolutely. And I also think because they have a larger platform, they are targeted by bad actors. And they're and and rightly so, I think they're afraid of that. Right? They not only get a, a mean tweet, they get a million mean tweets. Uh-huh. Then they get threats. A lot of the women reporters get death threats. They get people showing up at their workplace. I mean, it does become something else pretty quickly. And I'm sure that that factors into it. And I don't want to minimize that at all. Again, particularly for the women journalists who I just keep reading these accounts of how, you know, people come after them and pretty aggressively and in in scary ways. Um, some of them have had to relocate because, you know, people have figured out their home address and then they come and stalk them. So there's a crazy element out there that is triggered by the right wing mob. Um, and I think that's a big part of it. Um, I'd like to think that we could still do better, though, and ask the darn question 
and get an yeah. answer. Or right. stop inviting Greg, uh, or Rick Scott on the news. You know he's going to lie to you. Or at least acknowledge it and say, you know, Mr. Scott, you really haven't answered my question, but our time is short, so I'm going to just move on to something else. At least call it what it is. You know, because I will I will say, I was trying to think if I do this, and sometimes when I'm talking to a politician, well, first of all, sometimes when I'm talking to a politician, I think the fact that they won't answer the question that I always ask at least twice, I think that's pretty obvious to the audience. And sometimes it's worth acknowledging. And sometimes I think, well, you know what you've I've kept saying, like one of my big things with political types is be specific. Oh, I want their people to feel safe in their homes. Okay, how are you going to do that? Well, you know, we need pro. No, be specific. Tell me one thing that you're going to do and how you're going to pay for it. And it's sometimes it's like pulling teeth. You know, I mean, it's just uh, sometimes you just sometimes you just get tired and you just want to put your head down on the desk and say, you know, okay, I give up. You've you've destroyed me. Go ahead. Fine. Um, I agree with it. At the very least, at the very least, say that they didn't answer the question. Yes. And and back to the point of Jennifer's, I thought was really good is that, yes, uh, females in in, uh, journalism, get harassed more. And it's not just like some guy just out of his, who's, you know, living in his mom's basement deciding one day to go, you know, harass a, a reporter. This is like, is encouraged by people like Tucker Carlson. Tucker, yes. Tucker Carlson on his show will call out specific people. In effect, he might as well just put their picture up with a target on, on their face because that's what he's doing. He, he is telling people that this is the enemy and you need to go after him. And it, it's not subtle. That's what he's doing. Yep. Uh, guys, let's uh, let's take a break. We're going to go back to the phone lines uh, when we come right back after this. Jennifer Schulze, Mark Jacob and me. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Former Chicago Tribune and Sun-Times editor Mark Jacob and former WGN-TV news director Jennifer Schulze and I are talking about the media. Let's go back to the phone line. Steve is calling in from the Gold Coast. Hey, Steve. Happy to have you join our conversation today. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. And I, I think you've already addressed a number of the issues that I wanted to raise. Uh, I mean, yes, these, a lot of these people at the network level are, you know, they're not hungry anymore. They're their own brand. Local uh, journalists and people who are working in smaller markets are hungry. They they want to go, uh, to do something in the field of journalism. But if you're making $10, $15, 20000000 million working over at ABC, uh, you're comfortable. And that's your job is to protect your brand. It's not to go out there and, you know, try and become the next Woodward or Bernstein. At least that's not the way that, that journalism is being practiced today, unfortunately. And journalism is different than other things. We could do without political parties or a political action committee, but journalism is called the fourth estate in the Western world for a reason. And it's essential to, to the function of a good democracy. And I, I mean, I find it, this is just one of the points that I have a problem with. You know, I'll tune in to a Sunday morning show, and now they're actually they're, they're providing you with a table of context at the bottom. This is what we're going to be covering. They just move it along as they cover it. And you say to yourself, they've got five or six things they're going to cover there. It's an hour long show. 20 minutes of that is dedicated to advertising. How in heaven's name are you going to address six or seven things in a substantive manner over the course of 40 minutes? You can't. 
But again, right. you know, th- this is what it's come to. You know, I, uh, these people want their guests to return. The, the guests have something to hawk. The people who are there on their panels have something to hawk. And in terms of their their names, their their uh, identity, in terms of the, what they want to do in party politics and run for office down the road, selling books, whatever it is. But everybody's got a self-interest, and unfortunately, it's not benefiting us as far as voters. Um, I think I think you make some really good points there. And I will tell you, you know, before Jennifer and Mark and I start these segments, we have a whole we share all kinds of different topics. We have a whole list of things, you know. We didn't, you know, we've had, we've had more time than the Sunday morning news shows. And by the time you, you know, join in the callers and share stories and it's, you just can't get to it all. So, you know, great. They want to put it in a crawl. Here's what's coming up next. And here, here's why you won't get the answers you want from this interview because we've, you've, we've got to do with these four other topics. I'm not sure that that does anybody a service. Jennifer, thoughts? Well, I'm not sure it does either. Um, I think, frankly, people would benefit from more in-depth coverage than a smattering of lots of topics, particularly in these complicated times. Um, you know, uh, maybe, you know, headlines, uh, you know, a couple, this is what's happening today, blah, 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 and then go into a more in-depth interview where you really are going to dig into something. Um, because otherwise, everyone's doing the same thing all the time asking the same questions, and are we moving the story forward in any way? Are we telling any truths? Are we getting to any facts? I'm not so sure. And are people learning anything, and are we doing our job as journalists to protect democracy, et cetera? I'm not so sure about that. And frankly, I think the BBC is on to something. We emailed back and forth about this. The BBC said yesterday or the day before that they're moving – their journalism into another realm. They're taking, they're going off TV, they're going off radio, they're going digital. Um, and I hope that means that they'll be spending more time doing certain things and less of the same thing, if that makes sense. You know, I, I, I hope mm-hmm. digital w- will allow them to take deeper dives into things. Um, we shall see. Um, well, but- it should, because, you know, when you do anything on television, you are cons- you can only talk about one thing at a time and you're constrained by time. You know, putting right. things on a digital site, it's like the old days of a newspaper. You can afford to let something go, uh, go longer, you know, write more words about it be because people can peruse it at their own pace. And you have that power. You have that freedom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the tricky thing is to, is to not use that freedom to make everything incredibly long because right. the consumer doesn't want everything to be con- you know incredibly long. And so, and there's almost like it's almost like a math formula that the longer you write a story, the fewer people read it. You know, and 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 so people do need to be respectful of the consumer's time in that. But totally right if the subject deserves, you know, 45 minutes, you can give it 45 minutes. That's, it is it is this kind of um, digital presentation. It does constrain, does uh, free you from the, you know, constraints of, uh, of the schedule. Did the BBC give a timeline or wasn't it sort of vague, like just in the future, this is what we will be? I think it's it, some of By the 2030s, I think. Years, but it's, it's supposed to roll out over years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
You know, um, speaking of trying to get to all of our points, one of the things that we tossed around that I know we don't have a huge amount of time to address, but I thought it was really important, was this idea of John Fetterman and how journalists should treat disabled politicians. You know, because as, as was pointed out by you guys and some of the articles I read, it was like, you know, the guy's recovering from a stroke. He has some auditory processing issues. And yet journalists are, in some cases, acting like if they make any accommodation that um, they're they're crossing a line. I don't understand that. I don't either, because you well, you make accommodations all the time for communities you're covering, situations you're in. You cover a war differently than you cover a public hearing. I mean, so covering a person with, that's different than this other person, you ought to be able to pivot to do that um, properly. Uh, yeah, I just don't think it's too big an ask. Uh, in fact, and I'm shocked at how media treated him during that campaign. And it will be very interesting to see how the white, the D.C. press corps covers him in Washington. Um, so far, you know, some of them seem obsessed in covering his wife I, and, and talking about him wearing a suit. I hope that we will get a little bit more in-depth coverage going forward when he, after he gets sworn in and everything. It's really a great opportunity for us to, you know, to for the journalists to tell the greater public all the really innovative ways that people with disabilities are being helped these days, and, mm-hmm. and how they can how they can work around their physical problem. And the thing is, almost all of us have some sort of physical problem, whether it's because we need glasses or you know or anything. So. So it's this isn't weird. It's not like oh my gosh, Fetterman has a, you know he has a a physical issue, not dissimilar from other physical issues that other people have, and he's, and there are ways for him to work around it and still be an effective senator. And that's the kind of coverage that we need to have. We need to you know talk. We need to educate people about the ways that somebody who's recovering from a stroke can work around the problem and recover from it. That would be great if people if people learned more about that and had a better understanding of stroke recovery because of Fetterman. That would, that would be fantastic. And that would be a good job for the news media if they would do it, but for them to, you know, for just to turn it into some sort of dumb political issue, you know, is that's beneath everyone. Yeah. Well, I know that um, there was a point at which uh, during one thing of uh, Fetterman was using um, um, a, tel- a teleprompter or um, was a closed captioning. Um, to to get the questions and and I the article that I read about it was acting like it was giving him a leg up somehow it was giving him an unfair advantage and I thought to myself you know boy oh boy uh, do we need to rethink this issue right. oh absolutely I yes and you know you, you have to was FDR cheating by using a wheelchair I don't think so yeah. Right. People in newsrooms who who have different kinds of disabilities and I'm sure have different types of adaptive technologies that are helping them. Um, Yeah, I just think it was remarkably short-sighted, and I agree with Mark completely that I hope that going forward um, that, that something good comes out of this, that we learn more about strokes and people recovering from strokes, and that 
we the news media and the public at large become a, a little bit more sensitive to the differences that people have, but not dismissive. Because mm-hmm. I think some of the journalists were dismissive of it, and it was a lot. Did we just lose Andy? Did we just lose Jennifer? Oh, okay. Jennifer, I think you're cutting in and out here. Um, guys, it is always a pleasure to do this with uh, the two of you. I am so happy uh, that you uh, spend some time with us. We didn't even get to, you know, I had some of the, I had Andy cut some of the sound from my interview with Chris Bury, where he was, you know, I sort of said, you know, you're, you lived in the heyday of journalism. You're now teaching the next generation of journalists. How are you going to teach them to do it to do it differently? But most of what he said were the points that we covered today. Just, you know, a search for the truth, search for facts, follow up and, you know, hold people accountable. Uh, it, it seems so basic. And I know. Uh, it, that it is basic, but sometimes it sure seems like we just don't see it as often as we should. Um, Mark, Jacob, um, 15 seconds, any last thought? Uh, no, except that I, just one quick thing on Brittany Griner is that I, I, I just want to say that I think that people need to be happier that she got released than unhappy that somebody else didn't get released. And I think that there's a, I think that everything has become political today, and it's it's very sad that you can't just be happy about something. I loved your post on social media today where Fox News would find a reason to blame Joe Biden if he announced a cure for cancer. Somehow that would be a Biden negative. Jennifer, do you want to give us the final thought? Well, I agree with Mark, and I just want to say happy holidays to everybody. Uh, be safe out there. Enjoy time with your family, and I hope we'll be back together on the radio um, in the new year. I hope so too. Let's all all say a prayer and light a candle. (laughs) Thanks guys. I really, I really appreciate it. Uh, We are going to take a break. And when we come back, it is Thursday. We are hopefully going to be talking with Eric Zorn about this today's Picayune Sentinel after this. Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. I need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. Yes, that happy music means only one thing. It is Thursday and Eric Zorn is here to talk about the Picayune Sentinel. Welcome, Eric. How are you? Hey, Joan. Thanks. How are you? I'm pretty good. Hey, I, I, I don't know where things stand now. I saw a notice that there were only 16 single seats left for Songs of Good Cheer. Have you sold out now? I haven't looked at the website. I mean, there that's 16 seats over four shows that they had, and they were all individual seats. So so it was, uh, it was a pretty pretty tough ticket this year we just did our our first sort of run through this afternoon i'm just back from that um and we do we do a show for area senior citizens uh when we started doing it we were young and considered these people to be our elders and now they are our <laughs> peers uh, um, many of us in the cast are now are now senior citizens but uh but it was a really really good show really fun time and if there are any seats left to people should get out and, and uh and join us this weekend so 
So um, a lot. Uh, I, there was. Uh, I just. I didn't save it. There was something in the Tuesday Picayune Sentinel. I wanted to ask you about. I'll try to find that while we're talking. But let's start with today's edition and your top story about the Chicago Police Department. Tell our listeners about this. <clears throat> well, yeah, in, in uh, 2017, Chicago Police Sergeant Khalil Muhammad shot and wounded an 18-year-old uh, young man named Ricardo Hayes, uh, who is, uh, has schizophrenia and, and autism. And the video from that shooting is just horrific. The kid is kind of walking down the street, and he, he takes two steps toward a police car. He's unarmed, takes two steps toward a police car, and the officer opens fire on him. And, and this was 2017. The video was around. I wrote about it back in, in 2020. And the, the horrifying thing about this was that they asked Detective Sergeant Isaac Lambert, who was a supervisor, who investigated the shooting. They, they wanted him, he alleges, to sign off on a report saying that Muhammad, the, the guy, the police officer who fired the shots, was the victim of an aggravated assault by the kid. And it just wasn't true. It was like all the lies they made up about about um, about Laquan McDonald, mm-hmm. and and they wanted to sign off. And, and Lambert said no, he wasn't going to sign off on it. Well, pretty soon, Lambert was demoted. He was demoted from detective sergeant back to the patrol division. And said he had to work overnights, and and it was just a complete you know middle finger to this officer who tried to do the right thing and not sign off on this report. And so now he's suing the city and the police department, and the case is in court. And it's gotten some some coverage, but I really felt that it needs more coverage. I mean, this is this case to me is is very significant. Now, now Hayes did the the young man who was shot did survive. He was not badly wounded. But he was shot several times by an officer for absolutely no reason. The officer got six months suspension. So the police department knew that he didn't do the right thing. The city paid the family $2.5 million to settle a lawsuit. So the city knows that the officer didn't do the right thing. And this sergeant who refused to sign off on a bogus report, he's demoted. And it's this is the kind of story that drives me crazy. You know, you want police reform. You want police to do the right thing. After speaking of Laquan McDonald, there was a trial that didn't get a lot of attention where a female officer, two officers were on trial for having falsified some of the reports or uh, and this female officer got on the stand and said, yes, like that person over there pressured me to change the report that I wrote at the time. And, you know, she's under oath. She's a cop. She's laying it out. The two officers, I believe it was a bench trial, which cops always like because judges tend to be more lenient to them. Um, the, the officers were found not guilty. A woman under oath, you know, saying, yes, they were my bosses, and yes, they came to me and said I should change this report, and no, I didn't change the report. You know, we want policing to be better. You know, this isn't like, let us get a new David Brown. You know, let's not just change the head. It's it's the culture. It's the middle managers. You know, I mean, and it would have been bad enough. I mean, at, probably in the most perfect world, Isaac Lambert would have simply gotten a cold shoulder from the fellow officers. But to to actually be retaliated against like this. And here's what I want. I want the person who demoted him, the person who assigned him to patrol, the person who put him back on doing some overnight shifts. I want that person found. That's the person who needs to be held to account. 
Yeah, exactly. And and the thing is that the message that gets sent is very clear to the honest police officer, to the whistleblower, to the one who wants to do the right thing, who won't sign a, a bogus report, who won't tell a lie about a, uh, about a shooting. The message gets through loud and clear to that to that honest officer. It says, you know, play along, let's make up a story about how you were under threat, you were under attack, and if you don't do it, then it can cost you your career, it can cost you your, uh-huh. your position, you can get demoted. I mean, it's, it's a horrible situation, and, and at the time, when I, and I wrote about it back when Lambert was simply, I think he was just threatening to file a suit, or, uh, or, or he had just filed it, and I was saying, look, look, this is a perfect situation for the city just to say, look, we were wrong, we're going to reinstate you with back pay, and this was a terrible yes. mistake. And 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 this was and that's on David Brown because Brown it was new at the time. Brown Brown was not the superintendent in 2017, <clears throat> and he could have easily said, "Look, this was not done on my watch. This is not the right thing." But Brown evidently was under some pressure from some of his people not to do the right thing. I mean, it's it's just it's a it's a really uh, bad situation. And and again, I think it it was a story that I felt like needed to get more attention. Andy Grimm of the Sun Times has been doing great stuff from the courtroom. I'm not saying it's not being covered, but but uh, I, I feel like it it deserves to be a higher profile story than it has been. And I, I just think people need to pay attention to this. And, and you know, I understand. I'm sure you do too. That you know, being a police officer is difficult work. And they're often in tough situations where they make where they make d- difficult decisions, and sometimes those decisions can be and should be second guessed. But this case was fairly obviously uh, just a totally gratuitous shooting. There was no reason to shoot this kid, and when when, you, when that happens, you can't say, "Well, it's a tough job." You, you got to excuse him for doing that, for making a split second decision. Uh, you have to say that, "Look, this guy should not have a badge. This guy should not be in the department." And he's he back. He, he took. Uh, I mean, I don't know that he's still on the job now. But I, mean, who, I don't know. I don't know what happened to him since. But he certainly was only suspended for six months uh, without pay. And so that that makes you realize that the department knew that he did a bad thing, a really bad thing. Six months without pay is a pretty significant punishment. But then he's back on the force again. Uh-huh. And, and, and you know, which and the thing about the, the you know the real problem with this. That's the obvious problem we're discussing. But but you don't have. Citizens that trust the police, the police department, the police officers, they don't trust them. And when they don't trust them, that makes the job of a, of a police officer much harder. It makes the job of, of maintaining law and order, of, of catching criminals, of enforcing the law more difficult for them. I mean, this is, it's, it's not just that you want, I mean, the police reform is something that benefits everybody, or it should benefit everybody. When you when you're making sure that the police officers are doing the right thing and that they are trusted by the community and the people can can go to them and feel confident that they will help them and that they won't open fire on them in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, Eric, let's take a, a break. This, this is going to be an early break because I found uh, the Tuesday Picky and Sentinel and uh, you wrote about uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. I want to have that discussion when Eric Zorn and I come right back after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am talking with Eric Zorn. We get together every Thursday when the uh, free edition of the Picayune Sentinel comes out. But for those of us who are paid subscribers, we get an issue on Tuesday. And 
I know I'm feeding into the whole machine that you wrote about, but I thought what you wrote about Kyle Rittenhouse was was right on point. I mean, this is a kid who really, really should have taken the win and gotten on with his life, but it just doesn't seem to be working out that way. Talk about this, Eric. Well, I just noticed that he was in the news all the darn time. You know, they, I, I, and I gathered just a few headlines from the past a couple of weeks, Kyle Rittenhouse meets with House GOP members. Kyle Rittenhouse marks Thanksgiving promoting violent video games starring himself. Kyle Rittenhouse says his girlfriend is not a gold digger. Twitter drags Kyle Rittenhouse for appearing to compare himself to Jesus Christ. Kyle Rittenhouse goes viral after asking Twitter if files will reveal hidden censoring against him. I mean, th- this is a guy who is always in the news. And it doesn't make any sense that he's in the news because he hasn't done anything of any note at all for what since August of 2020, and and uh, I really think that that uh, the, you know, our friends on the left made a big mistake in trying to turn him into a big villain. When well, he was what happened to his kid. plan? Remember, he was going to lose oh, weight. Yeah. He was going to change his appearance, and he was going to go to nursing school like he had always wanted to. I guess the siren song of. Uh, media fame was too hard to resist yeah I, I called him an attention slot in this piece that i wrote and i don't you know I, and i and i stand by that i mean the, i think what he discovered was that he was getting interviewed by uh tucker carlson and other people on the on the far right and he was celebrated by them he was being invited to their conferences to speak and that was a lot more fun than going to nursing school and and not being a famous person anymore and so clearly he's decided to go with that and 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 too many of us, I think, still feed into that by, by giving him our attention, by getting mad that he's that he's a public figure, that by fulminating. And I, I know there's an irony in that I've written 600 words complaining that he's famous, uh, putting his name in the in the news, I guess, a little bit myself. But but um, I just sort of wanted to point out that we need to pick our villains pr- pretty carefully. Um, that the reason that he is a martyr, the reason that he is a cause celeb among the right, is that he was. Branded as a murderer and as a uh, you know this, this terrible person who did it, who, uh, who killed these people for no reason in Kenosha back in in August of twenty of twenty twenty, and the truth was pretty obvious to me right away, which was that this the problem here was not Kyle Rittenhouse so much; it was the fact that people are allowed to open carry these weapons of war, and I know mm-hmm. I know they're not literally weapons of war, but they look like weapons of war. They look like there's soldiers in battle, and there are these uh, semi-automatic rifles that can fire off quite a few rounds in a pretty short time. And they're carrying them around on their on their chests and on their backs through these protests. And that is not legally provocative. Uh, legally, you're allowed to do that in Wisconsin. You're allowed to open carry these kind of weapons. Uh, but in, 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 a, in a conventional sense or a casual sense, it's very provocative. To have someone yes. carrying a gun like that through uh, through a, a, a zone with, this, with a protest going on, and so people got very upset with him. One guy got really mad at him and chased after him and, and threw something at him and tried to attack him. And when that happens, unfortunately, the, the, you know, the law allowed Kyle Rittenhouse to shoot and kill the guy because the guy was looked like he was going to take his gun and kill him or something. I mean, the guy was kind of out of his mind. This was his first victim, Rosenbaum. And then some other, bunch of other people start chasing him down the street, and he falls down, and somebody whacks at him with a skateboard, and he feels like he's under attack again, and he shoots again. He kills another person, and he badly wounds a third person. And 
you know, it's a terrible situation, but it it just absolutely meets the definition of self-defense under under Wisconsin law. Yep. And that well, was, you that called it from obvious. the beginning that he wasn't going to get convicted. I, I did. And, and I just thought, like, let's not pay a whole bunch of attention to this. Let's realize that, that the problem is not the Kyle, is not Kyle Rittenhouse. It's it's our it's our laws. It's the laws that allow someone to carry a weapon like that, because if he had not been if he had, had a, a gun in his pocket, this never would have happened. Mm-hmm. I think that what happens is people saw that saw him carrying that gun around. They got they got yeah. mad. They got scared. They got you know whatever emotions that dredges up in people. And I certainly understand that. That's where our energy needed to be focused, not on this kid, because they turned it, they they made him into a martyr. And yeah. all these protests about him either way. And I thought this guy, this is not a significant case. This is not a the case of of his self defense. It was not did not create open season on protesters, as Jesse Jackson was saying. And, uh, and it did not create any kind of terrible precedent that put a lot of people in danger. That the precedent that's bad is this is this open carry of, of weapons like that. And so he became this martyr. He became this figure. And then when he was acquitted, as I knew he was going to be, and he became this you know, this celebrity who had beaten the left and then and uh, had a martyr to their accusations. Now he's apparently suing several news organizations for having defamed him and by, by referring to him as a murderer and so on. It's just like it's all so unnecessary and, and off point. And I, and just, sad. I just wish that we and, – and, and I mean, you know, and, and – I don't know where Kyle Rittenhouse's heart was at the beginning. I think he was just kind of a dumb, confused kid who who thought he was doing the right thing uh, by helping protect used car lots or whatever he was doing up there. Um, and he got into this situation, and now he's just reaching for people who are going to celebrate him, and that includes some of the you know the Proud Boys and other people like that. I mean, he's the the obloquy that he got from the left drove him into the arms of these terrible people on the right who are who are celebrating him and. And uh, I, I thought that he was going to fade away. And he said he was going to fade away. He promised to fade away. He said he, he wanted didn't. to. It wasn't just that, you know, he felt that he should. That was he wanted to go back to being a low-profile guy, living a normal life. But but no. But no. What? One other, one other I, I know we're giving short shrift to this. One other thing I wanted to mention, though, I wanted to get in before we um, wrapped up uh, this week's issue um, I love this. I love this news item. And I've, I, this has taken way too long to happen. A restaurant in Richmond, Virginia, canceled a private event by a conservative Christian organization saying that the group's opposition to same-sex marriage and abortion rights made the restaurant staffers uncomfortable. They felt uncomfortable and unsafe. Why has it taken so long for us to turn this argument back on them? You know, I hope this happens across the country. Yeah, no, it, it was a great. I, and I don't know whether the people at the restaurant were genuinely feeling uncomfortable or unsafe or if they if this was just a poker play on their part. They're saying, like, look, you know, you guys give us all kinds of trouble. You don't want to bake wedding cakes for uh, exactly. LGBTQ couples. You don't you don't want to uh, make uh, wedding websites and so on. And, and you want the right to discriminate against us. Well, we're going to try to do the same thing back to you. And, you know, I. I think it's a great either way whether they whether they were doing it as a as sort of a, a gotcha or whether they were doing it because they legitimately felt afraid or uncomfortable serving these people. I don't know, but but it, it does strike me that that we that we do need to illustrate 
the consequences of a decision that I fear is coming from the Supreme Court, which is going to be that private businesses have a great deal of latitude in mm-hmm. citing their religious preferences, their religious inclinations in order not to not to serve people. And you can imagine, say there's a, a, a hotel owner or a wedding caterer who doesn't believe in interracial marriage. And there are, there are religious faiths that don't believe in, in inter, interracial marriage. We, we only legalized interracial marriage in this country, what was it, the Loving v. Virginia decision mm-hmm. back in the 60s. It hasn't been that long. And there are, there are people who still object to that, and they can certainly cite religious grounds. I'm not exactly sure what chapter and verse they would cite, but well, they that's, do. Well, that's the thing. That's, you know... Um, This woman in Littleton, Colorado, who has the current case before the Supreme Court, her argument is she's a web designer and she does websites for people getting married and she doesn't want to have to do them for gay couples because because she is of a certain religion somehow doing that, even though there is really no harm as it's defined by the law that comes to her, um, it is it is somehow a free speech issue that her Ah, uh, her right to, I don't know, but it's a, she's framing it. Her lawyers are framing it as a free speech issue. And, um, even Alito, who certainly seems to have indicated that, you know, he wants to rule in her favor, the justices have indicated through their questioning that they would love to say yes to this woman, but they don't want to make it uh, so broad that this means anybody can refuse service to anybody for any reason at any time. And I think they're going to have a hard time threading that needle, Eric. It's, it's a very hard time. It's very difficult to draw that line exactly where you mm-hmm. want to exactly right. Where, because, you know, where is it that you can tell me that, that my religion is not motivating my views on who I want to serve or what I, or what I want to serve. I mean, I, I might find that, that uh, say, I don't believe in, in women in the workplace. So can I not cater a, 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 a business luncheon because there are going to be women there? And because my religion tells me that women should be in the home and not, and not in the working world? Is, is that going to be permissible? When you, when you agree to have a business that serves the public, you have to follow certain rules. And I think those rules are, are appropriately restrict about the fact that you can't discriminate against people on a variety of reasons. And I think that that sexual orientation, uh, I, I believe that it is inherent. It's not something that people choose, that this is, this is who they are. And to discriminate against them for who they are is just it's just un-American at the at the bottom of it. I mean that's that's uh, that that flies against our values, and I, I'm just afraid that these justices are going to find refuge in in religion, and try to let people mm-hmm. decide what the, what they want to do based on their religion. And and it's uh, it's a scary precedent that I think they that looks to me like they're going to set. And and uh, you know there are a lot of hypotheticals on either side, but but uh, I think the way things are going right now is it's working pretty it's working pretty well. I think. I mean, I don't think that you have a lot of problems right now with people being forced to do things that they don't want to do, and um, for them to create some sort of a law that allows people to sort of make a decision, like we're going to have a a restaurant that serves uh, does not serve gay couples, for instance. Why couldn't you do that under this under this? Why couldn't you? And and, and and you're absolutely right to extend it to uh, to to black people. I mean, because people who who there are still people who believe that being gay is a choice or something that happens to you, not the way you're born. 
And anytime anybody creates a problem like this, if you look at the problem and you substitute, say, black for gay, it suddenly looks so different. And the unfairness of it just is in stark relief um, because, you know, we've uh, hopefully gotten a little bit more enlightened about that. But it's just we're going in a bad direction. And I just love these people standing up. And even if you chose to be gay, even if you chose to be gay, people choose their religion and their religion is protected. So there you go. Eric, um, thank you so much. It is always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, Have fun. I will see you next week. That's going to do it for me. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Stay safe. I'll see you then. Bye.